Hi there, and welcome back to The Fuse Show. I'm one of your hosts, David Tran, and I'm also a co-founder of Xfusion.io. Today, I'm joined by Peter Luchens. He's a CTO and co-founder of Private AI, a business building privacy-preserving machine learning and natural language processing tools to help make privacy and GDPR compliance more reliable. Thanks for joining us the show. Thanks very much for having me, David. Great to, uh, to be here. So what led you to build this type of business? How did you become, how did you get familiar and intimate with this slice of the tech world? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, I'm not the primary person who started this. So the idea was primarily <laughs> that of my uh, co-founder, Patricia. So she was actually had this idea and she always wanted to do a startup in the privacy space, tried something else. And yeah, the market wasn't quite ready for that. And she came mm. up with this new idea after doing a bit of market research. And uh, yeah, that's when uh, I jumped on board to basically do all the, the machine learning side of things. I mean, obviously, I it was a really cool idea, but I uh, can't say it was my own. <laughs> that's fine. I think that's, so that's generally how co-founders work. We, we, we all bring something different to the table. Yeah. <clears throat> and in the grand scheme of things, anyways, I, I'm a believer that like ideas are pretty darn close to worth $0.00 and zero cents, and it all comes down to the execution. Yeah, I'm a very big believer in that as well. And also, uh, we uh, studied together actually in 2014 mm. and 2015. So I did a, um, a project in, in her lab. And uh, yeah, I guess I was kind of baptism by fire because I mean, it worked out, but it was uh, not a smooth project. I had a lot to do in a very short period of time. And um, yeah, that's, you know, when, we weren't working for a very long period together, but we became friends and yeah, you know, if we can, if you can do a really tough like project where everything's like, you know, not going perfectly and stuff. And, uh, I think that's a, to me, that's a really good indicator. What were you working on back then? Uh, that's on speech processing. So I, I did buy a master's degree at the university of Toronto. Um, you know, very well known for machine learning or deep learning, I should say. And, uh, yeah, it was in their lab and it was uh, a speech recognition project for like uh, difficult to pronounce words, hmm. or, like really long, uncommon words. Like, like scientific terms, chemical terms, that sort of stuff. Yeah. Okay. Also to be and completely what was transparent, it's a long time ago, so I apologize that. Don't worry about that. I only, I only came across that topic. And so you just shared it with me. It's like, oh, dang, that makes sense. Like if you. If a scientist or doctor wants this call for like, if they wanted to use AI to like transcribe their notes to be like, Hey, I ordered an order of so-and-so medicine. I'm pretty sure there's such a small chance that AI currently will get it right. Yeah. Yeah. And that's, that's a lot where we're working on these really hard to, to like pronounce uncommon words that aren't used a lot. Like how do you, you, um, improve system performance on these words? Do you use a lot of the things that you applied in terms of the principles and techniques back then to the same uh, in the field of, I guess, text processing now, or do you feel like they're pretty different beyond the overlap in obvious machine learning principles? Uh, that's a great question. Um, I feel the basics, like making sure you have good data and that it's of high quality and stuff like that is still the same, but like so much has changed. Like what we were doing back then was really tough and took, you know, weeks and months with, with modern day tools, that would be like a week or something like just how much better <laughs> the software has become. 
Mm. Um, especially for deep learning and stuff like speech recognition, it's incredible, like how much progress there's been on all the tools in the last, yeah, this was six years, I guess, six, seven years ago. So just over that short period of time to see the progress that there's been, is amazing. Is deep learning the primary tactic you can use at private AI? Yeah, so we're primarily based on uh, transformer models. So that's like, you know, the latest, greatest deep learning model right now, uh, which I don't think should come as any surprise to anyone. Um, they just work the best, but, you know, in terms of like, that's just the base, right? Like getting these things to actually work properly and generalize well when, and building like real production systems out of it. That's, that's a completely different story, I think, in terms of difficulty. Do you remember what the MVP of your product was like? Yeah, that's a great question. So we started off with a thesis that, um, uh, you know, privacy is tools are still very nascent. It's a lot like 2014 or 2015 in the deep learning space. Uh, there's really not a lot of good tools out there. So we set up to build something specifically for mobile and edge devices so that you could like redact or like de-identify um, personal information, like directly where it's created, specifically hmm. primarily on like iOS and Android devices and stuff like that. But yeah, what Were we you found doing on device. Sorry. Were you doing on device or did it have like a connection to the cloud? No, on device. Okay. Yeah. And how do you shift from that to doing it for, uh, compliance and, uh, privacy reasons in, in on-prem? Yeah, it's a great question. Yeah, we, we just like uh, looked in the market and, and saw what, what people were asking for. And yeah, everyone does stuff server-side and that's that's not changing soon. Uh, and yeah, that's that's what we switched over to do. And you know, the tech, the core technology is still the same. So it's not, it wasn't a massive switch. And uh, yeah, it's, I guess, how we ended up where we are. Uh, we also focused a lot on image and video, um, but we also found mm -hmm. that and it makes complete sense as well that, you know, most of the demand is in, in text because as humans, we don't communicate via pictures anymore. Like we do it with, with written words, right? Like we, you know, we send emails, we write documents, all of which is text based yeah. communication. So in, in hindsight, like that's, that's, you know, you, like very obvious, but wasn't to us at the time. That's how it always worked. Uh, what was, what's the saying? Hindsight's always twenty twenty. Yeah, yeah. I feel like that's, it's one of those uh, things where Bitcoin seems super obvious in retrospect, but when you think about it in the moment, it probably seemed really dumb. <laughs> yeah, I, I guess you could say that about so many other things. Also, like uh, yeah. buying houses or something. It's definitely something <laughs> I wish I did five years ago, but uh, lo and behold, I'm here doing a startup instead. There was a time in my life where I really wanted to buy a house, and I was like, that was the only thing I was like financially anxious. Yeah, financially anxious for. And then you fast forward a few years and you, I realized like, I, I don't even want a house anymore. I feel like it's I I don't know where I want to settle down. And if I had bought a house, I probably would regret it or lost significant money in terms of, well, I guess I would have made money due to all the inflation and whatnot. But if, if there weren't significant inflation or significant up, uh, uplifting in values, then yeah, I'd probably be in, in the red. Mm. <clears throat> so yeah, how, I guess you decide. Uh, oh, sorry. Yeah, go ahead, go ahead. I was going to say, I guess I the grass is always greener on the other side, but, um, mm. Yeah, I think it's it's good to realize those things. How did you split, uh, or how do you choose which parts of the business that you focus on versus the parts of the domain that are more under your co-founders uh, leadership? 
Yeah, great question. Um, Patricia being the CEO, <laughs> there's something I don't want to do. I could generally get her to do it. Um, uh, yeah, you know, I mean, there's a lot of tough decisions in the company, like who to hire. Um, you know, sometimes something doesn't work well and needs to be dealt with. But generally where we draw the line, I guess, is uh, in terms of the technical work and the building the product, that's me. And Patricia is really the, the public face and the public persona of our company. Um, Were you building the product? The, the sales and, you know, the marketing and all that kind of stuff. Sorry, did you say that you did the marketing and sales or she does the marketing and sales? She does, yeah. I mean, I'm, okay. I'm definitely in on everything and we always make decisions mm -hmm. as a group, but she's the, the public face of all of that. So when you were building the product, were you building it from scratch or did you have like a base that you're working off of? Um, we started using some like open source code, but we pretty quickly found out that it was pretty buggy and there were a lot of things wrong with it that really impacted performance. Hmm. Um, so what we use now is, is basically our, mostly our own code base. But I mean, of and why course, do you feel like, oh, sorry, go ahead, go ahead. I was going to say, yeah, like, of course we use like, you know, open source software, like PyTorch and, you know, closed source software, like the NVIDIA CUDA libraries and stuff like that. What makes you feel like open source tools weren't ready at the time you needed them? Like what, what do you thought was like lacking? Just the quality, um, you know, a lot of these things, are tested for, you know, like a single model for like a headline use case. So let's say the most popular transformer model, which is probably BERT for like building a chatbot or something, right? So, I mean, that'll work, but then all the other stuff, if you like go a little bit off the trodden path, mm -hmm. yeah, it doesn't work for a while. I mean, it's also because these tools are still very new. Um, so I'm sure that in 10 or 15 years or five years, you know, things will be a lot more mature, just like already from 2014 and 2015 to now, to do deep learning, to train, for example, a CNN for image recognition, that's literally a hundred times easier than what it was in, in back in the days. Like it took me days just to get my computer set up to, to do everything. Um, the GPUs, the hardware was a fraction as powerful as it was. You know, everything was pretty clunky. There were lots of bugs. If you did something just even slightly different to a demo, to the demo use case, it would break. Um, so it'll come with time. But the other thing is as well is that that's just the tooling. The, the other and probably more important part of any machine learning system is a data. And there aren't and will never be any open source data sets for basically most tasks out there. Like that makes actual sense. industry use cases. Mm -hmm. So how did you, did you have to just convince some of your early stage customers to, to run there are to give you samples of like private data or like how do you know how to train appropriately yeah that's a great question um yeah we we definitely were able to get some samples of data from our um from some of our customers uh also we did a lot of uh demos and stuff like that and we would always ask people for a couple of examples of their data uh so that also helped us out a lot and yeah it's just really a lot of collecting stuff from different places a lot of making sure that you know the the type of data they're running like some a lot of the time you won't get some but they'll at least tell you what it looks like and what it is just yeah making sure it's all covered uh yeah data 
diversity and quality really. Did you have a threshold internally of like, I want it to be at least X percent accurate before ready to release it to the world? Or how do you know how to like measure quality? Like what is good enough versus stretching for perfection that may not exist? Yeah, I mean, for us, because we're dealing with sensitive data removal, um, like the, the threshold is very, very high. So we can't get away with like 95% or something. Our system performs at about 99.5%, uh, even higher, like when we train for a specific use case. Um, so we, we had a pretty high bar. Um, we weren't at that higher level when we first put the product out. It already performed quite well, but yeah, we, we quickly spent a lot of time like uh, iterating and improving it uh, with our early customers, which was a bit of a stressful period. But yeah, we came out with a very good result. Everyone's happy now. And yeah, our system routinely outperforms any competing solution, including, including things from like AWS or Google, for example. Hmm. You mentioned training custom models. Is that on a per client basis or is it per use case basis? Like, how do you know when it's appropriate to use the more generalizable model that you built in-house or use a specific use case one for a specific client? Yeah, like we try to, to do, to use one model for everything. It just makes things easier and allows mm-hmm. everyone to, to gain the benefits of, of the complete process. And was that always the, so when, when do you train the specialized models that you're referring to? Um. Yeah, we we really mostly just run with one. So if a, if a customer has a very specific use case, then we'll uh, mm-hmm. then we'll do something special for them. But it's more about making sure our our system generalizes as well. Okay. And how how big is your technical team today? Uh, still pretty small. Um, we're about four people now on the technical side, but we're we're growing very rapidly. For including you? Yeah, that's correct. Okay. Most most of the company is doing other things such as sales or marketing or, uh, yeah, like other functions. So, like, what is on the technical roadmap for call, like, next year? Yeah, or great call question. Or... <laughs> Sorry? Or even just Q4 this year. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> um... Yeah, I I guess I think we're in a pretty lucky situation where, yeah, we just closed our seed round, which uh, is very, we're very happy to have M12 and Forum Ventures. So that's Microsoft's Mm. VC fund lead. Uh, Yeah, so I think for a seed stage company, we're we're pretty lucky to be in the position we have where we have a system which already routinely in every customer test that gets run really, really outperforms it any competing service. So we already in that sense have a, I would say a pretty well-performing product. It's just about mm-hmm. making it better and getting it higher and higher. Like we need to get as close to 100% as we can. So I think mm-hmm. there's a lot of parallels between us and like, you know, the, uh, the self-driving car companies that yeah, like 99.9% of the time it works, but it needs, it needs a couple of extra nines on the end to, to really get there. Uh, so just making sure we improve performance, add more entities, and also expand to more languages. Hmm. And we're also working on a couple of other features, such as uh, synthetic uh, data generation. Hmm. What's the what's the goal of that? Yeah. So 
uh, we've noticed that, you know, synthetic data is a very big and hot topic right now, especially for like machine learning training. The problem we've noticed with synthetic data though is, first of all, it's synthetic. You have no idea that it's actually captures the, the nuances of the original data set. Can also be a lot of work to tune and to like, how do you really know what it's doing? Like it's a ginormous AI model, right? Um, like it, it, it's not just a black box, which you can just push some text in. Um, and on top of that as well, I, how can you really prove that it's not just memorizing training data and spitting whatever gets put in the input to the output, right? Mm. Like, how can you actually really prove that, you know? Um, especially how can you do that intuitively to someone who's like a lawyer, for example, who has no technical background, like, especially yeah. when the training objective you're often using is a memorization one of like, okay, I'm going to hide this, but you have to tell me what it is, right? That's not learning. That's memorization. Right. Um, so what we've been working on is synthetic uh, PI generation. So we only replace the bits of the data that actually need to be replaced. So it's the original data. It's just things like names, credit card numbers, and stuff like that. And the beauty of it is, is that for most things that people want to do, such as sentiment analysis, that's not actually what they're after. Um, like, you know, mm -hmm. a name, credit card number, that's, that's not relevant to, to figuring out, like, if this customer service call, like went well or not, for example. Hmm. Right, uh, right. Yeah, and also the approach we're working on is it's also just a lot simpler to use because you put it in and you get something out and say that lawyer can look at it and see for themselves how well it works or not, right? I see. And you have a very strong guarantee on that's what it does because there's the black box, you put the stuff in, something comes out and you get that output and you put it into your system, right? Right, Otherwise, right. you have this ginormous model, which is feeding stuff in, and this just kind of, you know, it's like one big coupled system, if you get what I mean. So also, if whenever the software here is updated, and whenever the model here is updated, that model also needs to be updated. So hmm. there's a lot of things like that. And also, yeah, like just having you have a really strong, like battery limit there of like, hey, there's this text. You can look at it, you can visually inspect it with your own eyes. You don't need any technical qualifications whatsoever. And you can see that it's working or not working. Mm, I see. And uh, yeah, it, it just, it, we found it's a lot easier to use and it's still the original data. Hmm. What do you feel like gives you that competitive advantage over your competitors? I, I guess really this semi-synthetic approach that people are either going, most people are going for like a fully synthetic approach, which from our perspective is, uh, is pretty dangerous. And also, I mean, it definitely has its place, but, uh, <clears throat> we feel like targeted structured data generation is, uh, is much more, you know, in the real world in industry is, is a lot more robust and a lot more practical. Because, yeah, I mean, I these synthetic data techniques work very well on benchmarks and stuff and like, you know, regulated demos. But for us, it's literally just a black box. You can put whatever you want to in and it'll work. Yeah. Um, like when we first released the product, we usually had to do some tuning on customer data to uh, to get to, you know, like a really high level of performance. Like it already worked relatively well, but, you know, we could squeeze a bit more out. But we're at the point now where you can put basically any piece of text in and 
I mean, we still need to do tune-ups occasionally and getting, actually training the models does deliver some performance improvement, but already works very, very well as it is. And that's just... So, yeah, that's, that's just making sure that everything on the, uh, the data side has been done properly. So in the very beginning, when you're first building the model from scratch, were you the one to inspect the input, run it through the model, and then inspect the output? How yeah, many hours right. do you think you spend on that process? <laughs> well, that I would like to think about. Um, <laughs> yeah, it's, I mean, it's a startup. It's a lot of work, but I enjoy what I do. So, <laughs> so when when you since you're using a neural network, when you put a input in and you see it, the output, and it's like, oh, that isn't right. We forgot to strip out that piece of PII. How do you go back and tell the model to be like, hey, that's actually PII, and we should have stripped it out? Like, do you have to change? The parameters. I'm not super familiar with. Uh, yeah, there's some network. parameter tuning. Also, uh, making sure that we we have the right kind of data. We we also have a, a synthetic data augmentation. So it's it's kind of like it's synthetic data, but it's it's not at the same time. So we have a special technique which we can use to uh, to generate more training examples. So we do that. Yeah. So that's that's another advantage of our systems is that we use like few shot learning techniques. So we can, you know, traditionally you needed a few thousand examples for a neural network to be able to learn something, yeah. but we can get away with as little as five or 10. So it also allows us to- yeah. Oh, interesting, okay. Yeah, so it also allows us to operate a lot more like a traditional software company where it's like, hey, this doesn't work, can you fix it, please? Here's an yeah. example to reproduce it and, and we can do I things see. off that. Whereas it used to be like, okay, great. I need 2,000 of those. And how did you, did you have to do like internal benchmarks to figure out like how many samples affect led to what level of accuracy? That's correct, yeah. And the current model that you have, if you had to like ballpark how many like in, how many like lines of examples you needed to get to that level of robustness, like what's the magnitude? Are we talking like tens of thousands, thousands, hundreds, Yeah, millions? I mean, uh, like, we, we train on millions of words. So like okay. an entire bookshelf full of books type type size, which, you know, again, is, is vastly orders of magnitude bigger than any like research data set or something you would find online. Um, also the, just the quality of it, making sure that annotations are very good because, you know, all the open source and research data sets that have so much labeling error in them typically that that also yeah. prevents you from, from building a good product. Like, you know, one of the basics, machine learning, garbage in, garbage out, your model is only as good as, as the data you train it on. Well, if the labeling error is 10%, yeah. then, you know, if the, if the labels are only ever 90% accurate, well, your model is only ever going to be 90% accurate. So, so it's a lot of that. And also just making sure that the data is diverse enough. Um, so a lot of the techniques we use, uh, actually, funnily enough, there's a lot of parallels, I would say, between the way we work and how Tesla does things. So if you look at them, they're a very data-focused company. I mean, sure, they have a lot of neural network experts as well, but also their their approaches to data capturing and and you know stuff like that is, I would say, yeah, there's definitely some parallels of how we do things. Hmm. So when you were first working on the data, were you the one that labeled the data yourself? That was actually Patricia's uh, <laughs> Patricia's job. Um, 
yeah, we, we since have like a data team with a data manager and stuff like that to do that for us. But I mean, that's the other thing is that like, I mean, on the face of it, deciding if something is sensitive or not sounds easy, but yeah, all the edge cases and, and really making sure that whatever system you build is compliant with legislation, um, it's, mm. you really kind of need an expert to, uh, at the very minimum, like set up the system and, and decide what is what. Because, you know, in, in the real world, there's just so many edge cases which you, you need to decide. Like, for example, is um, is student loan, um, is that I have a student loan, is that personally identifiable? No, it's not. But if I have a loan at the, I don't know, the t local town bank for 25 years, I mean, that's a, that's a lot more like identifying someone, for example. So like, how do you, how do you decide in that? Or like, I'm, I'm a worker, everyone works, right? So that's not sensitive. Probably not. <laughs> some, some people would say yes, but like, I am a, uh, you know, chiropractor, if I'm an astronaut, for example, well, there's only a hundred astronauts or so. Um, so that's, that, hmm. you know, narrows things down a lot more, right? That's so interesting. And it's a question of like, where do you draw the line on what is sensitive, right? And also like age, you know, like I'm in my twenties or I'm, I'm in my thirties, is that sensitive? Or I am 303,500 or something days old and 11 minutes or something, <laughs> right? That, that would be, hmm. that would be, that would be pretty specific, right? So also how do you draw the line, right? Because also a lot of the legislation out there is also very vague. Um, yeah. So you frequently need to rely on like expert opinions and like legal rulings and stuff like that. And, you know, you need to know all this stuff in order to build a compliance system. So you have a data team that works with a legal expert. Is that, am I understanding that correctly? Yeah. And so the, the yeah, data we team actually that like have, um, uh, Anne Kavukian, who's the inventor of, uh, privacy by design, which is one of the components of the GDPR, she's actually, mm -hmm. uh, an advisor to the company. Hmm. That and Patricia is also doing, or was doing, I should say, her PhD in um, privacy preserving machine learning. Um, so she's she's also a very big expert in the field, and you know knows a lot about the regulations and stuff. I mean, I really don't know much at all. My expertise is really more on the machine learning and software development side, and I guess also some of the the business functions. Uh, but yeah, like we we have a lot of that expertise in house, but. You know, Patricia also has a lot of connections with the law firms and stuff like that. Mm. So between those two things. So for the data team, are these the people that label data from a variety of different sources, call it like books, blogs, wiki articles, whatever, just anywhere you can see different structures of data in diverse types. And uh, with how, the, how big was that team and how long did it take for them to like label a sufficient set? Yeah. Um, that's a great question. I mean, it's a neural network, so there's never enough or we're never done. Like it's always a thing that more performance, sorry, more data is more performance. More data is more performance, yeah. Returns. Returns. And that's, that's at least from my perspective and my experience, it's always the easiest way to, to improve a machine learning system is just more data of higher quality. Hmm. Do you, do you happen to know how many people there were or how long they took to label that data? Pardon me. Yeah. So we have about 15 people in the data team now and it's growing quite rapidly. And oh, 
yeah, I think we've expended at least 20 or 30 person years so far in the labeling effort. Wow. And okay. that's, that's a number that is increasing very rapidly. I can definitely see that being part of that competitive advantage that gives you the uh, difference in quality. Yeah. Yeah. And it's, it's also, also a matter of like collecting the data, right? Cause like blog posts, um, you know, stuff like that, that's all publicly available. So it typically doesn't have yeah. any or much PI. So for example, like there's no open source data sets with like credit card numbers or social security. Numbers that makes, that makes sense. <laughs> so it's also a question of like, how do you go hold of that data? Right. Mm. Um, a lot of that we've, we've had to synthesize some examples, but then we've also been very lucky to get, uh, some manually redacted examples from, from some of our customers in order to build our systems on. I see. Something I, I really appreciate about a lot of AI companies is like the models themselves just really need really good inputs and really good labeling. But in terms of like the engineer to impact ratio, it's really incredible. You mentioned like four engineers now, and I'm pretty sure in the early days, it's probably just like you and maybe one other person. It's incredible how far you can go with just like the few, a super small team and a lot of like compute power. Yeah, it's really incredible. But I think it's also a testament to the the tools that are available today as well, because there's no way you would have been able to do this five years ago. That makes, um, that makes sense. Even, even if you had all the same algorithms, just the tooling and how much time that took. Um, also like TensorFlow V1, that was the first, I would say, real like production ready tool. Um, you know, I started off with things like Cafe and Theano, which were out of research labs and Caldi, and they, they really just were not up to scratch in terms of um, like, not to detract from the work they did. I mean, there were at the time groundbreaking pieces of software, but yeah, now you have all the might of like Google and all the might of Facebook and all the might of Nvidia, like the world's biggest companies building these, like, you know, for, for quite a few years now, like these ginormous uh, pieces of software, um, you know, the, just the, the level that software has come to is amazing. Like, I mean, I, I used to work for a, a German company doing ADAS software and yeah, mm -hmm. like we, it, it, it really is incredible that like, you know, there were, yeah, I think a couple hundred people all up working on the, the software there. And yeah, you could really do most of that with a team of like maybe 10 or 20 people now, um, mm. with machine learning, like the latest deep learning approaches. What is the platform of choice that you, you like to recommend for people trying to do training? Do you do on, on device or do you do it in cloud? Uh, we mostly do it locally. I mean, we do some cloud stuff, but we're actually pretty, pretty, yeah, we're, I, I'm maybe not the biggest fan of the cloud. Um, I think it hmm. really has its, its place. Um, but it can get very expensive very quickly. And I feel it also hmm. can also add a lot of complexity very quickly. Um, and especially cloud experts uh, are like hen's teeth at the moment. So uh, I hope you've heard that expression before. I've heard something. I, I imagine it, I understand what it means. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I'm from Australia, so sometimes I say weird things, but uh, <laughs> um, yeah, it's it's just the cloud can, can get so complicated, you know, like, okay, so you have your data here in this bucket, machines there, and yeah. you have to connect the two and like, all the permissioning and starting stuff up, like we'll, we'll inevitably do that someday, but we do a lot of our training locally on workstations at the moment. 
Is there like one centralized workstation or does every engineer have their own workstation to train? Uh, it's a mix, but we, we typically have some big machines to, to do the, the big models on. Um, pardon me. And then we, we also have individual workstations for people to work on. Is this like consumer grade hardware or do you to buy like server racks and like connect them together? At the moment we're running on consumer grade stuff, but yeah, again, that'll, okay. that'll probably change. And that's also pretty impressive that, how like, far you can go. Yeah. Yeah. It's, I mean, our system is also designed to, to process data, like huge volumes of data. So it also needs to, to process very quickly. So mm. as a result, there's also kind of a practical limit to how much or how big we can, we can train models. Hmm. So do you feel like it's on the roadmap of call the next two quarters, like 10 X, the magnitude of training data. Uh, 10 X is a lot. Like really what it comes down okay. to is it's, it's like just raw word count. I don't feel is mm. really a very good metric. It's more like how diverse is it? How well labeled is it? And how well do you really understand what's in there? Like, are you sure that everything in there is actually really helping the model or is it some of it just some random Garbage. stuff that you've got that, um, you know, isn't reflective of any client use case and won't be, mm. uh, you know, could that be actually be detracting from performance? Like we, we have actually found a couple of examples from that. So I, see. I like to think of it more in terms of like the quality and the diversity, because especially with the transformer networks, they're pre-trained on huge volumes of data. So yeah, you, you really, I mean, we use a lot of additional techniques on top of this, but you know, you don't need the, the type of volume that you use to need to, to train the network. So mm. I feel quality and diversity matter even more now. In terms of legal compliance, how good is good enough? If you like, like, even if with an expert, these experts aren't necessarily the, uh, the people making the judgment calls all the time. <clears throat> no, they're probably close to the people who are, how do you know that a certain threshold is why is like enables a company to call themselves legally compliant or not? Yeah, that's a really good question. Also a bit of a gray area and also something where, uh, we've noticed in the market that, yeah, there's a lot of people with like legis led, sorry, legacy rule-based systems relying on regexes and stuff like that. And the selling yeah. them is like compliant with all the legislation when. They're really not, but yeah. the, the really bad thing is it's actually on the customer if it goes wrong, which, you know, it inevitably will if you're using it for things like GDPR compliance yeah. um, in, instead of on them. So it's, it's a really hard topic and a lot of the legislation um, such as the GDPR is, is actually quite vague on the subject. But mm -hmm. one thing is clear is that it needs to be very, very high. Uh, from our perspective, a system like ours is the absolute minimum to, to achieve like compliance of this legislation and, and actually just do a good enough job to, to satisfy, for example, uh, you know, consumer and, and company expectations. Like if you're missing five or 10% of credit card numbers, or if you're 90 or 95% accurate and missing five or 10%, I think most people would say that's not good enough. Um, yeah you know, something as sensitive as that, it really needs to be hundred percent or as close to as possible to that. Um, some things like, I, I'm not an expert, our CEO Patricia is much more knowledgeable in this, but some things like the uh, HIPAA 
standards. They, it's not on redaction accuracy, but on re-identification risk, which is another metric. And the requirement there is 0.04%. Whoa. So it's okay. very, okay. very, very high. Okay. But there's no th specific threshold numerically for GDPR and uh, other compliance? No, not to my knowledge. Okay. Although, and again, Patricia would be the best person to answer that question. But the so one you... thing is very clear is that it is very, very high. Where do you feel like current enterprises are falling short? Do they not know about these requirements? Do they not want to comply or do they uh, want, or do they think they're falsely compliant by using uh, other tools? I think it's really a mix of all of those. I mean, you know, a lot of people are selling tools out there which really aren't up to scratch um, and people think that's okay. A lot of the times, because it's all for internal use, that no one actually knows that these system are, mm -hmm. systems are really not performing well. Um, yeah, and I, I think it's also a change of mindset because, you know, the GDPR in, in 2018, that really changed things. So it's really only been a couple of years where privacy hasn't just been a nice to have um, or an afterthought, but actually required by law. And, and even now, mm -hmm. there's there's many companies which, which really don't, uh, aren't, aren't too phased by it, um, which is changing very, very rapidly. I think um, there's no better way to destroy your your reputation and a large part of your business than by uh, having a data breach or people figuring out that you're doing all kinds of things that you shouldn't have been. So when you're selling a product, what are, are there any examples of like pushback that come to mind? Like what are some reasons that a company wouldn't buy your software if they had the need for GDPR compliance and maybe even like uh, similar things? Yeah, great question. I mean, a lot of the time um, there's an internal system already there and then people are okay. like, just like, yeah, we've got something, it's, it's, it's good enough. And I think also, especially for like startups and stuff like that, like everyone's busy, everyone has a lot of stuff to work on. Yeah, there's a, let's say a 10, 20, 30% chance your, your company isn't there next year. Um, and that's really the, the biggest risk and the thing you should be focusing on, I, I feel is kind of the mindset. Um, but yeah, typically we, we, we have a lot of interest in our products. It's just kind of getting people to, to put compliance and, uh, you know, privacy, uh, like, you know, as a priority, because every company is busy. Everyone has a lot of stuff to do. Everyone typically doesn't have enough people and too few resources and like, yeah, where, where are you going to prioritize that? Like, yeah, sure, this is a thing, but like of all the things that there are, should you should you be working on this type of mentality? But I mean, that's also, um, I think a big advantage of our system is it's just a black box. It integrates with three lines of code. It just runs on anything, anywhere. You know, there's no GPUs, no system set up, nothing required. It runs like a, we distribute our system as a Docker container. It just runs anywhere, yeah. like any other piece of software. Um, mm -hmm. which I would say is, is still pretty unique for a deep learning based system, given that most need specialized hardware like GPUs. So just right. being able to plug it in, use it with three lines of code and like, look, it's a black box. It just works. It's really simple API. It literally has just one API route. Well, I guess two kind of, but like one main one, a couple of options. There's no like knobs or levers to fiddle with or change. Just put it in, it works. You can visually see that it works well. Um, mm -hmm. I mean, some people really like 
you know, having lots of knobs and buttons and being able to play <laughs> and stuff. But yeah, we've pur we've purposely designed this to be as easy as possible. Integrate so that hey, look, just leave this up to us. We're focusing on all this kind of stuff, and you can focus on building your business and making money. So when you're talking to a prospective customer who's considering your solution, what titles do they usually hold? Like who's responsible for compliance in most like companies for the solutions that you offer? Yeah, we typically go a lot after uh, CTOs and uh, machine learning people, and also a lot mm. of the, the compliance folk within a company. So things like CISOs. In terms of, in terms of what you've been learning, in terms of like talking with customers, once they become customers, they start using, like how much, how much feedback has your model gained from working with customers versus you working with uh, uh, external data? Like what's the percentage that you have to like ballpark it? Sorry. So like how much of the improvement is due to the, the feedback we've had from our customers? Yes. Yes. A very large amount. I would say it's at least 50%. I mean, if it's not just the data, it's at least, hey, we're working with this kind of stuff, mm. um, like being able to steer it into, into that stuff. So we focus very heavily on conversational data. So like speech recognition systems, um, we have a number of customers in this area and like, you know, just being um, our system, you know, just it being able to handle the nuances of the different speech recognition systems is very important. Um, so we do a lot of like specific optimizations there, which, you know, uh, 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 like at least to our knowledge, there's no other tool in the market with that kind of focus for this area. If there are entrepreneurs or soon to be entrepreneurs watching this episode that want to get into the space of cybersecurity, privacy, and compliance, what are some general tips you'd give them based on what you've experienced? They don't necessarily have to be building a competitor to you, but like in general, like what are some of the things you've learned that you only could have learned by being in the space? Yeah, it's a great question. I mean, I'm definitely not an expert. I was new to this okay. field. We're all here to share what we I mean, my background and my experience is really in machine learning deployment and optimization and things like that. Um, but yeah, I guess just in terms of my experience and what I've learned is, uh, making being able to make a compelling use case to company because just saying hey compliance that, that's typically not a very hot topic um whatever you do make sure it's very practical and easy to use um you know the whole value is being able to give someone who's not an expert a tool that they can do something that usually would have required an expert like building something that does what an expert would do but requires an expert to operate it is you know, that's, that's not really solving the problem too much. And I think really like really choosing a specific problem, um, really specific focus, very like, I, I know that's, that's what everyone says about startups, like really choose a specific problem and stuff, but yeah, that, I, that was really the case for us. Like, don't try to build an all purpose toolkit or something like that. Just really focus in on one specific thing and do it well. And, uh, I think that's one of, uh, you, you just put it into better words than myself, but I feel like when I was looking at your website, I was like, dang, they do one, it's very clear what you do. And like, I, I really like that slider thingy where you can like slide the image to see which information is redacted. And it's like, oh, dang, that's like, makes it extremely clear to any outsider who's even non-technical what the product does. And, uh, I think that simplifies it a lot for people who are just like, just considering solutions. Yeah. Thank you. I really appreciate that. 
Um, yeah, and just boiling it down for, for more layman's terms, uh, I mean, cybersecurity especially, I think, really likes its acronyms. Um, you know, and we were just at a, a big uh, startup event from one of our investors, and we were surrounded by cybersecurity companies. And I have no experience whatsoever in, in that space. Um, and just all the acronyms that were being thrown around was, was really, uh, I had no idea. And it actually turned out that the, um, that, that was one of the main things, uh, one of the main bits of feedback from investors as well is that like, look, there's just too many acronyms. Like, I mean, I think if you have like a really niche product and, and, you know, like that niche customer, they'll understand, but being able to, to really relate it and, and make sure it's really solving like a, a real, a real problem or real use case is also a big one. And I think it's also like really focus on like, I think the more boring it sounds, the better the opportunity it is. Like if you can get rid of, <laughs> yeah, if you can get rid of the most boring job of someone, yeah. um, yeah. that's far better than, Hey, I'm going to do, I'm going to take away the thing you like doing most in your day. So right. for this reason, for example, I don't think, um, you know, auto machine learning systems or something like that are really such a good bet because most data scientists spend their entire day just fiddling with data to have that couple of glory moments with the algorithms. And if you say, okay, well, you just got to get all the data fiddling and the glory algorithm work is now going to be done by this automated package thing. Yeah, no one's going to sign up to, to use that. Whereas if you say, hey, I'll do all the data cleaning stuff for you and you get to do all the fun model fiddly stuff, which, you know, everyone is, at least from my experience, what everyone wants to be doing, that's a far easier sell. So making sure you're getting rid of the mundane work. Um, yeah, I, I feel that's also a, uh, you know, a, a good way to, to be able to sell things. Because sure, uh, like everyone needs to, to justify to their boss and stuff like that, why they want something. But at the end of the day, you can always make those things look the way you want. And, <laughs> and even now in today's, um, you know, uh, competitive labor market where, you know, it's, it's so tough to find good people. If you can make your employee a bit happier and get rid of one of the shit jobs that they have to do, but costs a bit of money. Well, like what is, what is that? If you make that person happier and make them more productive and require less of their time at the same time. Well, I really appreciate your insights this past hour. I love going deep on technical domains and I love having technical founders on the show, but I'd love to get you the stage now for the people who want to follow you and your company's journey along. What's the best way for them to do so? Yeah, thanks. Really appreciate the opportunity to, to come and have a chat. It's uh, the hours really flown by. Uh, yeah, I mean, uh, you can follow us on Twitter, on our website. Um, yeah, probably our website is the, the best place to, to keep track of what you of what we do. And uh, yeah, if anyone has any questions on, uh, you know, privacy compliance, especially related to machine learning and stuff like that, uh, more than happy to, to have a chat and just give some pointers. Um, you know, there's a lot of different technologies and stuff out there. And yeah, could definitely... Uh, Give some good advice here if anyone just wants to get in touch of chat more than uh happy to reach out on linkedin or something sounds good well thanks again for your time peter